Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The wait for the next season of The Chosen is almost over. Season 3 begins on November 18th, this time in theaters. The theme of season 3 is Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. This season is the most consequential and emotional chapter yet, and it picks up right where season 2 left off and Michael and I are excited for this next chapter. Jesus delivers the most famous sermon in history and what follows are the consequences of living out his teachings. Both followers and enemies of Jesus multiply, stirring new troubles, tensions, and tough questions, many of which you've no doubt asked yourself. But in the midst of upheaval, Jesus gives rest. Episodes one and two will begin in theaters starting November 18th, that's just a couple weeks away, and episodes will start releasing for free in the chosen app before Christmas. Check out thechosentickets.com so you can reserve your seats. On this week's episode of Where We Are, Melissa and I talk with Brookings scholar and author of the new book, The Problem of Democracy, Shadi Hamid. Uh, We talk about democracy, the upcoming midterms, uh, and what democratic minimalism is and potentially offers to our politics here at home, but also democracy promotion abroad. You're listening to Where We Are. This is where we are. We are the where's. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And uh, you're sick right now, Michael. I am sick. I mean, the midterms wearing me out. I'm glad that we got through the launch of the Center for Christianity and Public Life without this weighing me down. Yes. Uh, but but yeah, I'm not I'm not feeling good. Yeah, the whole household has been sick, but you just got hit with something extra in your throat over the last like two days. So, oh. um, his throat is killing him, and he sounds terrible, and so that's why he sounds a little bit strange. Yeah, um, you're just not well right now. No, no, no. But you got me on like eight different medications, <laughs> so I'm. I'm feeling a little spacey, but but also not in the severe pain that I was in a little bit earlier. And plus, you know, this is like a combination of sore throat, combination of some sinus stuff. But but basically, I got a case of the man flu. <laughs> you really do, y'all. And, it's just it's unbelievable that man flu. And basically, um. I'm just looking You're for a little TLC. You're just feeble. I'm just looking to be cared for. Uh-huh. And 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 you've you've been uh you've been uh pretty uh gracious. You've been bringing me water. 
Taking care of your children. You've been taking care of my children. Uh, but, yeah, well, I think the, the good thing is we recorded this interview with Shadi before my health deteriorated (laughs) (laughs) yes but um the one thing we do want to point out to you with the audio with our for our interview about halfway through we had some technical difficulties so if it seems like um shoddy's voice gets a little bit yeah so um, so basically it's there's a reason for it basically we lost our primary audio on shoddy's side thankfully we had a backup the backup isn't as great as the primary that's why it was the backup but uh, we thought it was clear enough, and the content which Shadi brings, the conversation is good it's enough. Super that we, rich. Yeah, we thought we'd we'd still bring the full interview. So it's 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 not your phone or your computer, or whatever. Yeah, the podcast. yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's on our end. <laughs> yeah, don't don't try. I don't know, blowing on your keyboard or whatever. That's not going to fix it. Some, uh, wow, no, you really training. just revealed yourself as a millennial. You just yes. like an N sixty four. Just blow into the cartridge. Yeah, yeah, it'll yeah. work again. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, yeah. The Gen Z folks listening have no idea why why, why I would say that. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think before we move to this interview, though, you know, so Melissa, I'm going to be over on the Substack at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Yes. Probably Monday evening. I'm going to write up a big sort of things to look for on election day analysis i have a lot to say i think really do i think this is like a really fascinating uh midterm election i think there are a lot of interesting races i think it's unpredictable i'm going to try and give you a way of uh some key metrics to look for some key races to look at and i think that you know there's nothing more clarifying uh, in politics than an election. So, you know, uh, a lot of the debates, a lot of the opinions, they get sifted out by just what happens on election day. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to do a live thread on election night. Yep. On over at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Over at the Substack, and so folks will be able to watch along uh, with us the election results as they come in. Probably will start at seven thirty-eight, something like that. Depends on how willing the kids are to go down for <laughs> yes. for bed. Uh, so we have a lot of content coming your way. Uh, the content I'm most excited about at this moment, though, Melissa is this interview with Shadi. Uh, Shadi's been a friend for a long time. Wonderful guy. Uh, let me tell you a bit a bit about him. Shadi is a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution, and he's an assistant research professor of Islamic studies at Fuller Seminary. He's the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, how the struggle over Islam is reshaping the world. Highly recommend oh, that book. It's a fantastic book. He is a co-editor with Will McCants, who's another great scholar of rethinking political Islam. I also read that. Also very good. Yeah. No. So, uh, um, uh, and his first book, Temptations of Power, 
Islamist and a liberal demo illiberal democracy in a new Middle East was named a foreign affairs best book of 2014. Uh, Shadi served as director of research at the Brookings Doha Center until January of 2014. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and vice chair of the Project on Middle East Democracies Board of Directors. Shadi's also involved with his good friend Demir, our good friend Demir, uh, uh, with Wisdom of Crowds, which I'd highly recommend. Great podcast, great writing over there. We love the work they're doing over at Wisdom. I think we've even mentioned on a previous episode, uh, like, gosh, what a resource they were to us as uh, the situation in Ukraine, in particular, was was, right. was 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 um, was 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 flaring up and was was uh, uh, was was developing, and so would urge you to check out Wisdom of Crowds too. Uh, with that, here's our interview with Shadi. Shadi, my friend, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining. Where we are. Hi, hi, Michael. Hi, Melissa. Great to hi. be with you. Thanks. Hey, we're really looking forward to this conversation. This episode will, uh, this is our last episode before the midterms. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, wow. uh, A, obviously it's timely with your book having rolled out in the last uh, last few weeks here, but also a democracy seems to be in the air mm -hmm. uh, or at least conversations about it. And so we thought, let's have you on. We'll talk a bit about the midterms, but also want to dig into the meat of your book. Before we get into that, Shadi, could you just share a bit about your, your background, mm -hmm. uh, uh, your, your work, um, and, and then we'll, we'll jump into the book? Yeah. So um, I, I work at a think tank in Washington, the Brookings Institution, and I'm also a research professor of Islamic studies at Fuller Seminary, which is more recent. And that's pretty cool because I'm a Muslim. So it's sort of people are confused sometimes when they hear that. Um, but yeah, I work on the I work primarily on the intersection of religion and democracy, and the role of religion in public life, and to what extent we can or should accommodate a role for religion in public life. Um, so uh, yeah, I got into all this, I suppose, because um, well, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab, mm -hmm. and I came of age after nine eleven. So questions around how the U.S. should understand the Middle East and how we make sense of a region that I think for a lot of Americans was confounding. Mm -hmm. And part of that has to do with just a very outsized role that Islam plays. Right. And, you know, for secular elites, kind of people that I hang out with and know, I think that that's challenging. Mm -hmm. But more generally, secular and liberal elites, to use that kind of broad catch-all term, also, I think, have a discomfort with mass politics, with the masses, with ordinary people voting. Mm -hmm. And it's it's that sort of thing that you see in a lot of different regions, and it seems to be a common thread. So, and you know, we'll obviously dive into that because it's relevant to kind of a lot of things right now. But yeah. Yeah. No, let's let's do that. With So yeah. your latest book is The Problem of Democracy. And well, well, first, I have to say we've been friends for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, have read uh, your work for a little bit longer. Although we were fast friends, I remember first reading like uh, the first few essays of yours that I wrote. I thought, you know, 
Christians really need to hear from this guy. Uh, and now you're at Fuller Seminary. So yeah. that has been, uh, that has developed in a way that I could not have imagined um, yeah, you know, yeah. when we first connected years and years ago. So it's just been amazing to see how, how that side of your work has, has developed. But yeah, tell us, uh, why was now the time to write this book and what are you hoping to accomplish with mm-hmm. it? Yeah, so the book's title, as you said, is The Problem of Democracy. And it's somewhat a, it's a somewhat grandiose title, <laughs> to be sure. And I don't want to pretend that I'm solving the problem of democracy, but I'm right. trying to identify what I think is the fundamental political question of our time, mm-hmm. and then maybe offer a, a path forward, a way to, if not to resolve the democratic dilemma, as I call it, yeah. but to at least get our, get our heads around it. And, you know, for me, the problem of democracy is what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes? Mm -hmm. Is democracy good because of its outcomes or in spite of its outcomes? And that was one of the fundamental questions during the Arab Spring in the Middle East. I was living in the region at the time, and I saw these debates play out that when the Arab Spring started in countries like Egypt and Tunisia... Of course, if you asked anyone, do you like democracy? Are you happy that democracy is happening? They'd be like, yeah, sure, of course. Mm-hmm. How could we not? But then when push comes to shove and people actually see what democracy means in practice, yeah. you start to see a gap emerging. <laughs> and you know, my, my relatives in Egypt, um, so I'm born and raised in Pennsylvania, but most of my um, extended family is still in Egypt. Mm-hmm. They are very well educated, either PhDs, doctors, that sort of thing. This is the cream of the crop and westernized. Mm -hmm. So you'd think that, you know, having some encounters with the West or living in the West would make them more inclined towards small d democracy. As it turns Mm -hmm. out, it's actually quite the opposite. The most anti-democratic people I've met and known are Western educated liberals in the Middle East. Yeah. And so I think that might sound weird to a lot of like casual listeners who, you know, aren't familiar with the region because it's not what you would expect. And um, this is why I'm skeptical of people who think that more information and education is what will make democracy better. If only we educate the voters, if only we give them the right information. I just I think the record actually shows a very different story. If we look at most radical movements if we look at the rise of ideologies, it tends to come from very well-educated people and intellectuals mm-hmm. are some of the worst in this regard. Like you always mm-hmm. got to be careful about the philosophers and the intellectuals, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, so I see this and it darkens my view of human nature. I see people who are dear to me, who I love. And, you know, it, start, it starts to cause a breach in the family, basically, where they say, Shadi, First of all, you're not even really Egyptian. You're American. You're coming here. You're preaching mm. democracy to yeah, us. Yeah. And you're not the one who has to live with the consequences of democracy. We do. You can go back to the U.S. whenever you want. And you know what? If democracy produces these really dangerous outcomes that are a threat to everything we hold dear, then we don't want it. We don't want it. And to be more specific... When Islamist parties not only did well, but actually won in consecutive elections Mm -hmm. in 2011, 
to 2012 in Egypt, they, they're like, well, I, we're not really on board with this because look, this apparently the masses vote for these right-wing religious parties and we're not willing to live with that. And we will fight to prevent them from being in power, from staying in power. And long story short, they, um, my relatives were vigorous supporters of the military coup, which overthrew mm -hmm. the, the first democratically elected government in Egyptian history. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, it, it right. actually gets a bit worse after that. Mm -hmm. There's a massacre where a thousand yeah. people are killed in one day, so on and so forth. So that, that kind of, you know, that had an effect on me. Yeah. Um, and I think it gets to some really interesting and foundational questions. So it affected how I how I viewed democracy, how I viewed liberalism, mm -hmm. also how I viewed the question of evil. Because mm. when people say, "Oh, well, Trump supporters are deplorables, they're evil, they're beyond the pale, they yeah. hate democracy and want to destroy our country," I'm like, "Okay, maybe they're." Uh, that's you know there's probably there's obviously some legitimate criticisms of uh, about the conduct of Trump Trump supporters, but when I think about badness, I think about relatives who supported a mass killing of their fellow countrymen, mm. and it's like just let's try not to mm. get things too out of proportion. We mm. as Americans were so narcissistic about our own context, we don't know what evil looks like abroad. We, and you know what? I'm not willing to call my. I'm not willing to disavow my relatives. Yeah, and say yeah. that they are evil. They're not evil. They're not. They're not in any kind of absolute fundamental sense bad mm -hmm. people. They ended up supporting terrible things, and in a lot of the rest of the world. People end up supporting terrible things when they feel like they're under existential yes. threat. That's mm. why I'm very sensitive to existential politics yes. because I see where it leads. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you've mentioned liberalism a little bit. So could you dig in? Because in the book, you dive into democracy and liberalism, how that has developed in a Western context, how that has played out in American foreign policy towards the Middle East, how that plays out in the Middle East just itself. And then you dive into democratic minimalism after that point as you don't propose it as the solution or the silver bullet, but an idea to try, especially with American foreign policy towards the Middle East and as almost, again, not a solution, but an idea for the United States to potentially try as well for, its, for itself. Could you dive into liberalism, the democratic minimalism ideas? Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of a, a lot of Americans assume that small L liberalism and small D democracy go hand in hand. And mm -hmm. you know, your listeners will probably be aware, but just to clarify yeah. here, I'm talking about the classical liberal tradition, what we would normally associate with um, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, mm -hmm. the emphasis on individual freedoms, um, personal autonomy, the primacy of reason over revelation. You know, the liberal tradition isn't anti-religious, but it does imply a somewhat restricted role for public religiosity, or at least mm -hmm. in terms of how people should justify their positions by reference to yeah. religion and so forth. So, um, you know, the primacy of the individual over the collective, these are all, I think, some of the, you know, important constituent elements minority rights, gender equality. Right. These are the things that are emphasized. When we talk about small d democracy, we're talking more about a set of procedural mechanisms to regulate conflict through mm -hmm. the holding of regular elections. We're talking about popular popular sovereignty, being responsive to the electorate, 
um, being responsive to the the will of the majority to some degree. Um, so that's sort of what we're talking about here. And right. those two things, you know, especially in the '90s when you know a lot of us were in this experiencing this triumphalist phase, the mm-hmm. end of history, and all of yeah. that, we just started to assume that mm-hmm. these things went together in part because they were going together and they had gone together. But if we look at this historically, we see a much more complicated story where liberalism and democracy are either in tension with each other at the very least or diverge considerably. Mm-hmm. So being aware of that history like helps us to understand that good things don't always go together. Mm-hmm. There are trade-offs. Maybe you'll have a bit more democracy and a bit more, bit less liberalism. And if we look at the founding fathers, I mean, I'm just looking at a quote right here, just so I could remind myself how intense some of this is. But, you know, John Adams has this quote where he says, quote, unquote, unquote, there never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. That's kind of intense. <laughs> That's yeah. very- kind of intense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. And here's Madison, uh, the, the fa- you know, the father of our Constitution. He says this. He says democracies are, quote unquote, as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. This is intense rhetoric, yeah. anti-democratic rhetoric. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, that's all. Uh, yeah. So I think that the Middle East was in some way ahead of its time while we were basking in the end of history, thinking right. that all the big questions have been resolved. Mm -hmm. The Middle East was holding elections where we really see these ideas coming into conflict. Okay, so um, we can talk about the 1987 elections in Egypt, the 89 elections in Jordan, the 1991 elections in Algeria. Um, Then, of course, we have the 2006 elections in uh, Palestine. we have the 1995 elections in Turkey. Uh, the list is really a long one. So for those of us who are working on the Middle East, we had to contend with these issues because they were live issues when people weren't paying attention or when they thought that this was a uniquely Middle East problem. Like, look at those pesky Arabs and Muslims. Right. Yes, They can't get their act together. Why are they voting for these um, you know, Islamically oriented parties that want to impose Sharia law and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I guess so. Even during the Arab Spring, Obama, you know, Obama was in yes. his second mm-hmm. term. Yep. And it still seemed that most Americans were within the liberal tradition. The parties didn't like each other. It was getting more intense, but we weren't diverging on foundation like the 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 really raw existential foundational questions we were getting there but we weren't there yet and so people were still debating things like universal health care policy right. or marginal tax rates oh tax you know no one really talks about taxes anymore has any have people yeah. noticed that right. you know um the tan suit that obama wore and that this was a big you know controversy so it was a quaint it was like i wish you know that was maybe the good old days. I come yeah. back to DC <laughs> in 2014. Then we see the lead up to the 2016 election. Yeah. And then it all starts to change. Mm-hmm. And people didn't vote for Trump versus Hillary and then look at the it's not like as if anyone like looked at their websites. They went through yeah. all the policy prescriptions right. on all the key issues and were like, who mm-hmm. has the better policy here? Mm-hmm. No. 
It was about identity. It was about the big question, the big questions of what it means to be American, the future of the Republic. It was building into this very intense kind of politics. And we see that continuing to this day. It's not about economic divides. I've actually argued in some pieces that we've actually seen a convergence on economic issues. Yep. And that's actually part of the problem in a way, because right. there aren't these fundamental divides on economics and the role of the state in um, intervening in the economy. Obviously, there are differences, but it's not the primary cleavage of American politics any longer. Mm-hmm. So parties have- are as a people. It, it's what's. Yeah, no, I, I want to. I mean, there's a lot I want to pick up on there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, um, but I just want to sift this out a bit. What what I take you to be sort of arguing, it, it uh, in, in one way is that if we aren't willing to accept an advanced democratic minimalism, uh, uh, in the Middle East, it's really clear that the the um, uh, that the the consequence of that uh, will will be undemocratic systems. It, like like if if we aren't willing to accept uh, people working out their differences and that leading to outcomes that aren't necessarily what America would ideally uh, uh, desire, um, that the the cleavages and the 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 sort of um, uh, philosophies and the politics of the Middle East. Uh, means that the democratic project won't work at all. I mean, we saw this in Afghanistan, right? There was, you know, decades of uh, uh, trying to contribute to civic infrastructure in Afghanistan. And one of the uh, reasons that collapsed is that the State Department had all of these assumptions about what was a bare minimum for, and you look at some of the standards they have, and it was like, um, uh, specifically around religion, and you go, oh, is that really a bare minimum standard is is it really a bare minimum standard that um that that folks can't choose to organize their judicial system uh to incorporate uh yeah, islamic teachings and law um so i think it's really clear in the middle east context but i think increasingly in america we're coming to understand that look if if we are willing to accept that democratic decisions might lead to truly legitimately democratic decisions might lead to outcomes that that we don't like, that are not liberal. Um, uh, If we are willing to accept that, then we're actually undermining the democratic project entirely. So just do I have that? Do I have that right as, as reflective of your point of view? And, and um, just, I think what, yeah, I think what you described is how many liberals view it. I'm critical of that view, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah. I think... Yes, right, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and because people are conflating different ideas and not making careful distinctions between, okay, when we talk about democracy, what are we talking? When we talk about liberalism, what specifically does that mean? That people are just lumping things together and... um you know, and democratic minimalism, which is something I try to lay out in the book, mm-hmm. a, a sort of alternative way of looking at the democratic idea, one that goes against the prevalent view now among American elites. And the the move has been to treat democracy as a thick thing that has all these other values built in. First of all, I think there's a danger there because it raises expectations too high. When we talk about democracy as this thing that 
oh, it's, it's, you know, it solves all these problems. It's supposed to work. It delivers. Mm-hmm. It gives you consensus. It leads yeah. to gender equality. It leads to better abortion policy. It leads to all these other things that are not intrinsically related yes. to mm-hmm. the procedural mechanisms. Right. So we project such a heavy burden on democracy, one that it can't bear. And that's partly why we see this disillusion with democracy. We're not clear about what democracy is and what it's supposed to do. Yes. So we get disappointed. Yes. And, you know, not to say, you know, sometimes people, the the way to be happy is to just have low expectations going into like everything. You know, maybe we don't have to go that far, but we have, you know, realistic yeah. expectations. So when I talk about democratic minimalism, I'm talking about not completely decoupling democracy and liberalism, because there are some okay. things in the liberal idea that you need. You need the right to protest. You need the right to organize political parties. You need a right to criticize the ruling party. There has to be some minimal level of freedom of expression because if you can't express yourself, then you can't communicate your preferences to voters. And if voters don't know what your position is, then they don't actually have a fair choice between different options. So the opposition needs to have a right to oppose. They have to have a real shot of winning the subsequent elections. Yeah. So that's but then there's a lot of other things that I that I do argue for decoupling cultural, yeah. religious and social liberalism. That is that is a different category. So if a democratically elected parliament wants to restrict wants to restrict the right to blaspheme or the right to insult prophets or divine texts, we as Americans don't have to like that. Obviously, go, go against the First Amendment in our case. Right. But if other countries want to put the line somewhere else based on their own religious traditions, and to be fair, I mean, European countries do have limits on yeah. speech, yes. just on a different set of issues. Yeah, sure. about, so in some sense, most countries do limit speech in a way that Americans kind of consider anathema. So, you know, that's one example, but also, um, you know, restricting abortion, which is <laughs> which is now relevant to the U.S. in a very kind of live way. But what really bothers me is when people say, well, if if people vote to restrict abortion or that's what elected representatives in a particular state want to do, that's anti-democratic. This is bonkers to me. It's like literally the exact opposite. So, Shadi, you've been engaging in a conversation on Twitter about this sort of decoupling of uh, uh, of democracy from liberal and progressive outcomes uh, with a, a bunch of people, but Jamel Bowie, and and he said something that I thought was interesting. He he said, when people such as myself say that democracy involves a set of substantive commitments, they do not mean that democracy requires, say, the New Deal. What they mean is that it requires a commitment to popular sovereignty, political equality, and rule of law. And I think some of what you just said, uh, I mean, I mean, so, so you just said, yes, some minimum free speech requirements, freedom to sort of assemble, to, to protest, uh, that's implicated. I can't speak to Jamel's specific point of view here, but I think part of your concern and really part of, part of my concern in this debate is – you know that sounds that sounds fine. Popular sovereignty, political equality, and rule of law. But then what happens is sort of that gets backfilled with, yeah, you know, we're only talking about you know uh, political equality. But how can you have political equality if you don't have uh, a relative uh, income 
uh, equality. If, 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 if you have uh, super rich and folks under the poverty line. And so, uh, and then you sort of get a couple steps out and it's like, so actually democracy requires uh, Medicare for all, <laughs> you know, and I, I kind of like hear these sort of arguments often. And um, I think both, both you and I are, um, uh, uh, I, I think we'd like to both see democratic outcomes that lead to greater uh, to that, that lead to uh, policies that would address economic inequality, for instance. But what you're saying is, but but that that can't necessarily be a way that we determine whether our democracy is functioning or not. And so, just yeah, re- reflect a, a, a bit on on that. And then I do want to read you just one more quote from Bowie because this reminded me of a mutual friend of ours, uh, Jamel uh, uh, tweeted at one point: "Your democratic minimalism." promises to resolve conflict by leaving substantive questions out of it, but you do this by essentially defining those paramount values outside of the category of substantive. And so I think we kind of have two dueling points of view. One is that our politics is so divided in part and so divisive and so toxic because we're, we're, we're um, asking it to bear too much. Whereas I think there are there are others who would say our politics is so toxic, our politics is so sort of uh, trivial at times. It's this weird kind of as as you talk, spoke about earlier. It's this weird sort of combination of trivialities with existential weight, um, and that that's because we're actually not asking our political discourse to bear enough. That actually are the the sort of um, we're sort of preemptively excu- uh, excluding conversation about ultimate things. We have a we have a friend Samuel who I wouldn't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that I, I've heard him argue similar things there. So uh, par- parse that out for us. So, uh, how, how do you respond to to both of those kinds of um, uh, yes, when uh, democratic minimalism has to include popular sovereignty, sort of equality, and how people backfill that. And then this idea of whether our politics is bearing too much or too little. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about the backfilling because, yes, if I'm I'm all for rule of law and equality and, and political equality before the law and so forth. The problem is we don't agree on what that means in mm-hmm. practice, because yes. as, as you just alluded to, we're so polarized on first principles that we don't even agree on what the word substantive means. Right. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. see this kind of what, like everything becomes a kind of semantic, not to bring up the fascism debate, but I've also been involved <laughs> with right. that um, yeah. with Jamal Bowie and, and others. <laughs> and, you know, there's just, we can't agree on how words are used, like yes. sentence yeah. struck. Like it, right. it's really, right. it is a bit frightening when you think about it. But my, um, so I think that's a big part of the problem. What do we mean by rule of law? And actually, um, my co-host on Wisdom of Crowds, uh, Demir, made a good point on Twitter yesterday with the Israeli elections. Mm, you have yeah. someone who is coming back to power through democratic elections, Benjamin Netanyahu, mm-hmm. who doesn't seem committed to the rule of law. Mm-hmm. And he's had so much legal issues Yes. I, I right. can't even like follow all right. the legal issues he's been involved in, but you know, is he going to like pardon? Like, is he going to pardon himself? Will he use 
his renewed power and authority to basically get off the hook with certain I don't I don't know I yeah, haven't followed it closely right. but I think there there is there are we see these tensions in any number of any number of places so what do we mean when we say rule of law people are preemptively laying the ground for saying that the midterms in 2024 were not free and fair yes this yeah. makes me nervous yes so when they talk about voter suppression laws in Georgia, that is being used to say that the result, if Republicans win, it's not going to be entirely legitimate. They would have won through foul play. And I'm not being hyperbolic because I had an, a debate about this on, on Morning Joe yes. with Mandy Hessen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look, not to, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, Mehdi and I, I hope we're still friendly, but like... <laughs> Uh, it got pretty intense, and I don't know right. what he feels about me now. But, you know, look, I I get where he's coming from, but it worries me. And I can't pretend that what he told me um, doesn't worry me. Mm. I said, like, will you accept if Trump wins fair and square or someone like him in 2024 in free and fair elections, no foul play? Yeah. And he base he said something along the lines of, well, it won't be fair and square. Yes. But how do you know that two years right. ahead of time? Like, how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah. Um, and I feel like both, like, not not to both sides. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Sure. Both sides do a lot of this where they say, like, if the election doesn't turn out the way that it should, it, then it means that something went wrong with the process, that someone... Right was engaging in foul play. That's why I don't like when people start getting into the foul play discourse, you can find foul play. Yeah. No right. democracy is perfect. Like when did we like um anyway, I think that no. is something so, to sh- be concerned yeah. about. So Shadi, one of like the examples of this, right? So when Barack Obama was elected in two thousand eight, uh he came into office with I think it was either fifty 59 or 58, I mean, um, Democrats in the Senate, or it might have been 60. And then when, I mean, it was, it was uh, Democrats were heavily uh, uh, in the majority in, in the in the U.S. Senate. And then it took only like four years where we started hearing these arguments that the Senate is sort of like irretrievably, uh, structurally, against Democrats, uh, yeah. that that we needed to abolish the Senate. You hear similar things about the Electoral College uh, under the same under the same thing, like it's structurally opposed to Democrats. And my pushback has always been, that, well, so first, I want to I want to say there are, um, you know, you can make arguments about um obviously, if you go to the House, there are real like redistricting gerrymandering issues. But Again, Democrats were in a strong majority in the Senate that has not changed structure less than 15 years ago. What, what the real problem is, is that the Senate is uh, structured in a way that uh, makes it difficult for today's Democratic Party to be in a strong majority in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, that, that a Democratic Party that was better positioned to win in places like South Dakota, where we where the Democrats' Senate majority leader, where Tom Daschle used to be from, and we can't even imagine winning there again, 
Um, like that isn't just because there have been sort of structural, it's because the Democratic Party has changed and what the Democratic Party is today is less likely to be successful in the Senate. And that's a Democratic problem, a small d Democratic problem. Like, do, do you respond to the structural incentives to be a different party that could be more successful in places where you're not successful uh, or as successful as you'd like to be now? So I, I just wanted to, there, there is a so, I loved your book because there are, and I've loved your writing on this this subject for for years because once you see what people are doing by trying to shoehorn in and backfill in all of these prudential, often partisan policy desires and arguments into just being the functioning of democracy, then it's like it's everywhere. <laughs> you know, you just see it all the time. Yeah, no, I. I appreciate you bringing that up because it feels like such a different era that I literally forgot that Democrats had 60 seats in the Senate, which is remarkable when you mm-hmm. think about it. But you, there is no underlying principle that people are being consistent on. It's so, like, it's <laughs> yeah. so cynical that I'm, I'm not even sure. It's hard for me to actually understand if are people being sincere? Are they gaslighting us? And just to be clear, I mean, I have never voted for a Republican. Yeah. yeah. This is my side. Yes. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm on the left of center, and I don't know, like some of your loyal devotees might not be familiar with my background. It can sometimes seem like I'm just like wrecking on Democrats. But there's a couple of reasons that I focus on that, at least for the time being. First of all, it's my side. Those are the people I spend time with, talk to. Yes. And I think self-criticism is always the better approach than just like – do we need another right. person who's saying that Republicans are bad? Like I like yes. Also, it sort of reminds me of like post 9-11. I, I came up with a policy that whenever Muslims committed a terrorist attack, I would not condemn it because it should go without saying that I'm yeah, against yeah, yeah. terrorism. Like I don't right. have to start every single comment by being like, oh, yeah, right. I condemn terrorism. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then I go into like whatever I actually want to say. Yes. And I think yeah, there's yeah. something similar that if you don't do, I guess I'm sort of doing that right now. I just, yeah, <laughs> but, like, but yeah, full throated January was the, was terrible. It was an insurrection. Republicans are bad. There's all these election deniers. So be, I just want to be, yes, yeah, I guess. Well, it just, it's, it's frustrating that people expect you to do a little script. Right. Uh, otherwise, they're like, oh, he's like a, a Trump apologist. Or yeah, something. no, it's amazing. The, and the two things that are going on is we're in a time of semantic politics without actually wanting the nuance to come after the one to two simple sentences. So people want you to say those one to two, whatever you need to say on such and such topic, like your debate with Madi on cable news network, where you can only say a few things within a few seconds and on his side as well with, with his arguments, where two things to be true at once there can be voter suppression but what you're but you're saying that you're actually worried about the the fact that um you know if there is no foul play would with a democratically held election we should be accepting it that there are two different things going on there can both be true at once but people want a semantic politics without the nuance and then what you have in the book which um i would love an entire other book on you uh, from you on this is on the existential politics also playing at hand which the two of them together is just a really toxic cynical um, combination all the while 
liberalism and the total uh, sort of confounding ideas that people actually have about liberalism and what we mean. And again, what we mean by substantive and what we mean by what actually goes into those things. We can't even agree on the most foundational basic principles. Um, that's all at play here. But Michael, you, you sort of ended some of your comments, which um, brought up uh, Biden's latest, President Biden's latest speech on democracy this past Tuesday. So just a few days ago, a week before the elections, he made a previous speech, what, a month before in Philadelphia around, around what, six weeks ago. We wanted to hear what you thought about this latest speech on democracy, especially as we're heading into Tuesday, the, fa- the timing of it, the substance of it in light of your book and the various ideas that you're, you're thinking about right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I am kind of furious about a lot of this, but I, you know, I, I have to figure out, like, I do want to modulate because, well, I mean, okay, here's, I'll just tell you guys what I think. Okay. Like unvarnished. Let's do it. So, okay. So a lot of things bothered me about Biden's speech and it's, you know, the pro, you know, people should actually give it a read because yes. Yeah. It is interesting in a lot of different ways. It's a pro democracy speech, but one that I think captures a certain kind of paradox where this idea that to save democracy, it's like, there is a danger that you, you save democracy by suppressing it or suppressing democratic choice because the other side is so bad. I mean, it brings in a lot of different mm-hmm. components, including the, the existential side of it. This mm-hmm. is why I never think that anyone should consider the upcoming election to be the most important election of their lifetime. That way of thinking about elections just gets you in the wrong mind space, because if it really is that existential, that presumably that would mean that the other side are an existential threat. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not your fellow Americans. They're not opponents. They are enemies to be defeated. Yes. And sometimes I worry, am I being unfair to folks, my critics? But then I actually see what they say on Twitter and in their articles. They really do believe that these are enemies to be defeated. I'm not being hyperbolic about no, that. No, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, okay, but there's, but there's also other issues. So basically, Biden is saying demo- democracy is on the ballot. You have to vote for one side because the other side will end our democracy. Um, and first of all, it's, it, it feels like hostage taking. So after Democrats on the local and state level do a lousy job of governing for the last couple of years and alienate specifically people of color, the brown, I mean, there's a brown backlash going on. Mm-hmm. So they're basically gaslighting brown voters and saying, we did all these things to piss you off. Um, but you know what? Forget about all that because there's only one choice because democracy is at stake. It's a way to basically forego any responsibility and accountability. It's a way of not contending with the consequences of policies on the local level. And, you know, we don't have to get into all of them, but, yeah. um, but certainly like Arabs, I mean, I've been warning about this for a while. I, at this rate, Democrats are just going to like lose Arabs and Muslims if they mm-hmm. keep on doing this. Yeah. But they're also yeah. already losing Hispanics. Yeah. Yes. And they are hemorrhaging even, even black support because of their crazy views 
on public education, on race, identity, gender, um, crime. These are things that affect people like in a very, in a very like proximate way. And to tell them, don't like, don't vote on the things that actually affect right. you and your community and your family and your kids vote on democracy. It's kind of outrageous. And right. Like we're not, it's not just, uh, you know, don't don't vote on those issues, um, but like we're not going to modulate our position at all. As a matter of fact, anyone who's observing this knows that they they uh, there seems to be the idea that because the Republican Party has gotten so extreme that that gives some political leeway to move further to the left and still win elections. And so it's not just don't vote on these policy issues. It's it's we're not even going to modulate our positions on these issues you care about so that you can focus on democracy. It's no, we're going to do whatever we want <laughs> on these issues that are important to you, but because democracy's on the line, you, yeah, you don't have a you don't have a you don't have a choice and you're either going to stand up for democracy or you might as well you, or you might as well be a MAGA Republican. I mean, that's that yeah. that's the that's that's what's been set up. Yes, and I don't think we're being I I don't think we're being unfair in describing it this way because and this is why I, I used the word gaslighting earlier, because I feel like I'm in this weird parallel universe where, not to say that there's anything wrong with being a white liberal, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Michael, um, but, uh, <laughs> but I, like white liberals are, I feel like I'm being gaslighted on Twitter, where these people are, so I, I bring up, in like a very neutral way. Well, listen, you know, this is what Democrats could have done better. They could have actually contended with the, with grumbling from minority communities, mm -hmm. including the one that I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. And then, and then there's, there's a big, there's a bigger thing that we, we as minorities are expected to vote Democrat, regardless of what Democrats do. There is mm -hmm. something, we really get down to what is animating this it is really patronizing i don't want to like it's really annoying and i think that mm -hmm. it's condescending and a lot of people see that mm -hmm. condescension and they're like wait we're allowed to vote on other i mean just because you were you know i'm really glad the democrats stood up against the muslim ban in 2017 but mm -hmm. you can't ride that indefinitely no. i mean <laughs> <laughs> or or his and, and Hispanics are there was just I haven't read it but it looks very interesting Tim Alberta's article why Democrats are losing Hispanics in yeah. the right. Atlantic yes so I'm glad people are paying attention to this and they should but like we're not like automatons who just vote based on our group identity yeah, and white yeah. liberals have to get their head or they can't take us for granted yeah and the fact that they think that we should vote for them regardless is offensive yeah, I don't want to mm -hmm. say it's like racist. Right. I don't. I don't want to use the race card or whatever. It is sure. at least to me offensive. Right. And, and right to be so right. Uh, a few a few things. You know, I, I'd sort of say like one. Right. Not not everyone. Not every Democrat is sort of taking the vote for granted. I mean, one race that we've been watching very closely, where these issues are very much at play, is the the Myra Flores district in, in Texas, mm -hmm. where, where this is very much at the center of that race. And we'll see which, which way it goes. And I think it's one of those races where both candidates are running very local races. Uh, 
but but the the sort of national partisan atmosphere is gonna we're gonna see how much that dictates things. So I would say you know it's not it's not everyone, but I certainly uh, what you're saying is certainly reflected in some portion of yes. Yes. of of Democrats, Democratic strategists, the way some Democrats run their campaigns. I think that's like that's almost undeniable. Second thing I'd say, which is again not to do the sort of caveat thing, but I, I do just want to write like. Republicans could very well be looking at this this moment and saying exactly what we're saying about the other side, which is you know Republicans are are have have sort of become more extreme. You know Democrats should modulate and capture the center. I think it's it's worth saying out loud. Like Republicans generally are not making that move on their side either. I mean the election denialism is a real thing, especially you know uh, uh, you know. In Arizona's a mess right now. You basically have have three uh, uh, governor, secretary of state, and and mm-hmm. AG that are sort of riding this very hard. So, um, I, I think what we're uh, so it's not just oh why why you know uh, um, it's that you know we have a politics right now in which the incentives are such that there doesn't seem to be the gravitational pull. That you'd expect for both parties to to uh, appeal uh, to the center, to back off of and and police their own side, and uh, that leads to this these sort of gaslighting situations where you know Republicans are saying the same thing to to their voters, like yeah, you may be upset about um, you may be upset about uh, Dobbs, you may be you may be upset about you may be upset about. Uh, even some of the election denialism stuff, but Democrats want to invade your schools and and all that stuff. And so it's just a very frustrating thing to know there are such important policy issues that have to be decided. And yet, and and we're going to see out of these midterms, whoever wins, there's going to be a claim of a policy mandate. But Shadi, I don't know about you, but I don't, I really don't see how you could pay attention to the way these midterm campaigns have played out and and believe that a policy mandate is going to come out of whatever mess we've seen. I mean, I mean it's there are very few uh, federal races I've seen where there's really been a policy debate. Um, and yet it's going to function so that you know, whoever wins in these races, they're going to claim, oh, people didn't vote for me because I said democracy is was on the line or because I said, you know, their their kids' future was on the line. They voted for me because of my, my tax policy. And so that's what I'm going to, yeah. you know, implement. It's it's a real it's, talk about democratic challenges. Like that's a that's a serious challenge to to yeah. the functioning of our democracy. Yeah, totally. This is a problem. Like election defeats are supposed to lead people to reassess and rethink mm-hmm. but the problem yes. is you can always spin an election defeat in your own whatever your preconceived and look i think we, all sure. of us do this at least a little bit we see the things that we want to see so i can imagine that if democrats get shellacked next week that i'm gonna it'll sort of confirm my brown backlash theory that said i think it's probably true so like but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see the exit polls okay, yeah yeah. But there are ways to assess this, like, and hopefully we'll have some data that gives us yeah. some more clarity. But, uh, you know, there is a temptation confirmation bias. We know it's a thing we all have to protect against it. So that's why 
election defeats don't actually create like better thinking. Yeah, at, at least not individual defeats. I think we're we're in a time where you got to lose multiple times in a row. You got to lose multiple cycles for for sort of the the power within a party to to really shift. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, at the same time, like maybe it's good that there isn't a policy mandate. I don't want either. Like both parties are are not doing a great job of, of appealing to me personally as a voter. So <laughs> if there isn't a clear yeah. policy mandate, yeah. maybe that's for the best. Um, and that, you know, one of the great things about American democracy is that it's a very large, diverse country. It's chaotic and messy. Mm-hmm. This is another reason I don't buy the democracy is about to die argument. Mm-hmm. It is very difficult to impose a dictatorship in a country as unwieldy as ours. <laughs> Like yeah. there's there's just no precedent for that sort of thing. I mean, first yeah. of all, like I just it's very when you when you actually push people on this. So tell us, like, lay it out for us. Mm-hmm. What would di- the imposition of a Trumpist dictatorship actually look like in practice? That's when you start to see like no one actually has right. a clear understanding. Because I honestly, and so when people say Shadi, you don't take the threats of democracy as seriously. Well, I don't take the threat that America is going to become a dictatorship under Donald Trump as seriously. Yes, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I do think that we have enough um, checks and competing power centers. I mean, let's remember, unlike in, say, Hungary, Hmm. um, the left of center is so culturally dominant. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people forget about this that um okay one of the reasons not to not to like justify how republicans uh, you know behave on the election denialism thing but i think it's also worth understanding the power imbalance that on a national level republicans don't really have or, or conservatives or certainly trump supporting republicans don't really have any communicative ability so they feel mm. so they kind of act out not to I'm, i don't mean to suggest that they're like like children but like when you when you are blocked from being able to express yourself when you feel like no one's listening to you you resort to what can seem like crazy politics yeah and i i don't think then you you have you have left of center folks in the commentariat who act as if they're under attack but they're the ones who dominate the cultural and political mm-hmm. discourse on the national level. So it's this weird thing where people aren't aware of the power imbalance in different ways. We can yes. look at it yeah. culturally, yes. politically, state level, local level, national level. And that's a problem too, is that everyone is acting as if they are under assault that's right. from this other side that is going to destroy them. Um, and the other side feels ex- exactly the same exactly. way. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, no, the University of Chicago had a poll out that was, uh, I think it was 79% of Democrats and 80% of Republicans said that the other party was uh, out primarily to bully their side. And it's like, yeah, no, that's a, that's well, a kind of difficult, right that. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but also like when we talk about election, uh, <laughs> election denialism, if we were really serious about it as Democrats, then we wouldn't fund and support and boost election-denying candidates. This is what we've been saying, Shadi. Millions of dollars. 
This is this is what we've been saying. I mean, I don't know if you've seen these Boldick in New Hampshire pulling within a, real a few points. And then Sean Patrick Maloney, you know, the person who has been pushing this policy on the Democratic side to pump up these far right uh, candidates during the primary, he 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 could very well lose. No, no. So he'll go and lose. While having done this. Okay, question to you. How do people justify this? Because you're more, you know, yeah. more Democratic officials and activists. I haven't seen anyone really account for this. It seems so morally indefensible. Well, so, so, so we've, we've, we, I've been uh, speaking out against it uh, pretty robustly, but the rationalization is something like this, which is, look, the, and this is, this is sort of their voice. I don't, Again, I, I think it was a big mistake morally, substantively, politically. But but they would say, look, the Republic. We, we saw during the Trump years, the Republican Party is going to bow to the extremes, to the Trumpists, uh, no, basically no matter who it is. And so, even if a slightly more moderate Republican gets the nomination, when they get in office. There, no, almost no one stood up to Trump. No, no one stood up to sort of the far right of the Republican Party, and so a there's not a uh, they would say there's not really that much of a substantive difference um, of whether a slightly more moderate Republican wins or a more extreme Republican wins because they all act the same. Now I'd push back on that. They funded Peter Meyer's opponent in Michigan, and Peter Meyer was one of the. Uh, is one of the foremost. So, so I think there's some big questions there. But then they'd say, and it gives us a a, a, a a great. They think it gives them a greater chance to draw to win by strong by drawing a a stronger contrast. But for all of the reasons that we could discuss, I think those that rationalization doesn't hold up. If you really think this is as big of a threat as you think it is, then you don't. You, you, you don't become complicit through the funneling of millions of dollars to increase the chances that these folks enter office and then give speeches six days out from the election about how basically if if you are a good American, you won't support the very candidates that your party funded to get it. I mean, it's just, I, I don't want to be, the, I, I wish there was a, a different story to tell, Shadi, but like, like you, just kind of like need to call it as as we see it. And I just think to put up money against Peter Meyer in that race in Michigan after all that Peter Meyer did out of principle, even though I disagree with him again on these prudential substantive questions, he probably wants to cut the social safety net more than more uh, where I want to expand it. These kinds of things, but yeah, to me, it's like unconscionable i mean speaking of the cultural dominance for me it's just hubris i think that's just playing into here the hubris that we're so culturally dominant that we're gonna siphon off the the small bit of people who you know are more attracted to the far right but everybody else will come and line up because they're gonna they they know that it's way too extreme and you know evil and awful and whatever other word you want to use it's hubris about the cultural dominance i think a lot as well yeah but I mean, Shad, and, and we'll give you the closing word. But like, I just you know, this is the last episode we're going to do before the midterms. And right, what's difficult about these conversations is again, like, uh, there are profound, profound 
challenges that are legitimate uh, if uh, if Republicans take back Congress for issues that are really important. And I think that some of the concerns that President Biden raised in his speeches in Philly and then last uh, earlier this week in D.C., some of the challenges that uh, that people who are running, Democrats who are running in these races, like some percentage of it will be proven out if if Republicans take back the Senate and the House. And so like, you know, it, it is like this situation where, um, well, for, for our listeners, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, doing the best that you can to faithfully steward your vote toward uh, the well-being of your neighbors in imperfect circumstances. And so no matter who wins these elections, likely uh, uh, there are going to be good things in your view that result from that, and there are going to be bad things that result from that. And so what we ask our listeners to do is do the best you can to, to, to weigh those things and not try and wave away and try and pretend like, oh, whoever I vote for, that's the perfect option and the other option is completely evil. No, actually bring that tension with you to the ballot box and understand that the decision you're making is an imperfect one for imperfect people and to make a commitment after you vote that whoever whoever wins, you're going to hold them accountable mm -hmm. and do what you can as a citizen in whatever sort of your position is to try and encourage the good and limit the bad. And that's the best that we could do as individual citizens. Um, but, but gosh, like the way... Uh, the way these midterms have been set up uh, do not make that easy <laughs> at all. Yeah, so I'll love, give, give you the last words, Shadia. Yeah, I love everything that you just said, but it also reminds me that having the approach that you just laid out is really an uphill battle. It sounds very mm -hmm. compelling to me. I think we're in a similar place in how we, we, we view these issues. It's a really hard sell. <laughs> To a lot of people yes. in a way that I underestimated. I think I've watched people like, look, I don't, I'm not suggesting they are literally mentally ill, but people like losing their political bearings in such a profound way. It's, I find it really hard to process. Yeah. And mm. my hope is that, um, whatever the, the fever will cool. I don't know if that's... Yeah, the fever will yeah. break. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All kinds of metaphors. We'll see. We'll see after the midterms if people, you know, get back to their senses. It's understandable that people get worked up in the lead up to an election. But I don't know. It's not... I'm not... What I would say is we... It's, it's probably not enough and it's not going to be satisfying to a lot of people. But what I... What I tell... Whenever I'm giving a talk about related issues... We, we can, we as individuals have agency. We have control over what we do. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I do think that individuals matter because they add up over time. There are more of us than it seems. I've mm -hmm. always been surprised, like people who are lurking on Twitter or send me a DM, they're like, Shadi, like, we don't feel comfortable saying certain things publicly mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, because yeah. of this, the social pressure. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a left of center person in good standing, you cannot be honest about your convictions. That's mm. where we're at right now, mm. especially mm. on the third rail issues. I don't want to get into like, you know, 
I'm, it's not my job to get yeah. into like sure. the trans rights and all of that. Sure, sure, sure. of course. But or race. I mean, race is one that I am comfortable talking about, but that's only because I'm not a white person. If I was a white person, I would just shut up. <laughs> I would just. I'm not gonna like why. Why take a risk? I'm yeah. also more secure than a lot of people. Yeah, right. Professionally yeah. and financially, that gives me leeway. Other people don't have that luxury, so for them, they can't afford doing this. Hmm. But what we can afford is forget about Twitter, forget about what people are writing publicly, because most people aren't writers, but most people do interact with their fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. And I think presumptive generosity is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't assume the worst of your opponents. You don't have to even assume the best of your opponents, but right. at least yeah, yeah. approach them with some generosity of spirit. Actually listen to them. Just listen to their grievances. If there's a Trump supporter mm-hmm. that you know, you don't have to agree. So listening to someone air their grievances is not the same as agreeing with them. I think there's this idea now that if you give someone a hearing, it means that you're platforming them right. or you're legitimizing them. That's yeah. scary, too, because mm-hmm. then you can't listen. Yeah, right. No, yeah. If, if you don't blow up your Thanksgiving dinner, that, then you're like a, you're a traitor to the cause. It's like, no, actually, I just want to get through a dinner with my family. Like, how about, how about we just yeah. like are able to eat together, you know? Yeah, I know some people literally who they advocate like not talking to your uncle. Like Mm -hmm. you have to get this person out of your life and do like a family ban. This is getting more, it's, you know, I think anyone who will listen will be aware of some of these situations, like with families and individuals and friends. And it's just crazy to me that people are actually approaching their lives in this manner. Mm. Um, and it goes against just like every, like it really goes against how I understand the American idea, Yeah, which is however bad our fellow Americans are short of like proper white supremacists. Okay. But part of the problem, even when I say that people will be like, well, 40% of the Republican party are proper white supremacists. So you're, you're stuck no matter what you say. Yeah. Yeah. But like our goal should be, if we think about the percentage of Americans who are beyond the pale, that that percentage should be as low as possible and we should go out of our way to lower that number. Yes. If you have a definition of white supremacy where 40% of the Republican Party qualifies, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but we that's something that is under our control as individuals and how we interact with our yeah. fellow citizens. And each and every one of us has to model a certain kind of presumptive generosity in our own interactions that's where we start yeah no shoddy that's so good we could that's a good word yeah we could we could talk for so much i mean just like in the last 15 minutes i'm like oh yes. there that's another two hours yes. of conversation yes. there so we'll have to have you back on but Love hey congrats you. on the book yes it's been so much fun seeing that get yeah, rolled out and i hope people read it the problem of democracy yeah and i just want to say shoddy uh, I complain about this all the time as a foreign policy person because this is a foreign policy book with great application for the United States. The fact that someone has put out an idea that is different because there's such a dearth of ideas in policy in general, but especially in foreign policy and especially in United States foreign policy making, I want to thank you for a book like this that actually puts a new idea out there and says, let's discuss. It just doesn't happen much anymore. There's just Our toolbox is so, is so small now. The ideas are just not flowing anymore and so i'm very grateful for this book seriously thanks so much for saying that it means a lot to hear that and yeah it helps kind of 
you know, it's conversations like this that give me a little bit more hope. And obviously, we have one of the people here who wrote the book on reclaiming hope. So, That's right. But seriously, thanks so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, Thank I'll you. see you soon, Shabby. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, listeners, we want to tell you about one of the podcasts that also partners with That Sounds Fun Network that releases every Wednesday, and it's the Matthew West Podcast. If you don't know, Matthew West is a singer-songwriter, and we think his podcast is perfect for music lovers. Joining Matthew on his podcast will be some of his favorite artists, athletes, authors, and influencers, such as Mark Hall from Casting Crowns, best-selling author Max Lucado, Sadie and Corey Robertson, NBA star Cody Zeller, best-selling author and speaker John Gordon, and many more. In addition, listeners will be taken behind the scenes in each episode to experience some of the powerful stories behind his music. Some noteworthy episodes lately have included Uncomfortable Conversations with Emmanuel Acho, John Steingard's Journey Through Doubt, and Priscilla Shire's Prayer Strategy. Michael and I think you should check it out on your favorite podcast platform. Michael, what did you think of that conversation? Oh, I so enjoyed uh, talking with Shadi. Always brings interesting point of view that is informed by not just sort of a parochial, you know, view of American politics, but he brings you know an extensive array of scholarship and experience abroad, and I think does some really interesting. Uh, is able to bring that back into the American context in a in a really interesting way. He's also just been, um, you know, one of those. Um, he's made significant contributions to um, our understanding of religion and democracy specifically, and he's just been such a valuable voice there too. Yes, so, and in, in the book he dives into the sort of paradox of religion and democracy and it's it's the, some of the stuff that he has written in the book is very, very good. Yeah. So but yeah, that conversation could have gone on for about three hours, everybody. We cut it off. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Every every time he'd give an answer, I thought of three different sort of trials <laughs> yes. that we could go go down. I do wanna pick up on something from before the interview and mm. from our co- sort of our intro conversation which is and this is just like a marital thing i I wonder (laughs) i wonder if any of our i wonder if any of our listeners might have a shared experience which is that it is a fascinating thing when uh, the pronoun usage regarding whose children (laughs) the children are at any particular point of time uh when uh when uh, they are a particular inconvenience or a stressor, they are your children. Uh, when when they do something good, they're my children. Uh, when when you're trying to when you're trying to build up some family solidarity to do something that none of y'all want to do, they're our children. <laughs> we better do this. Uh, so yeah, I'm interested in in if. Uh, any of our listeners uh, who have children also notice that change in the pronoun depending on the circumstances from your to mine to our. Um, I, I just picked that up when you were when you well, were. Well, you want to know it's something. It's the weekend and I have them both to myself and I look forward to my weekends where I might get maybe five minutes to think with 
to think clearly with silence in the room. This is your five minutes. I know. This is your this five is, minutes. Yes. Think. Yeah. Great. Doesn't that sound really fulfilling, Michael? <laughs> uh, you know, I think I'm helped in this situation that I have an external expression of my sickness in my absolutely demolished voice. I think it. I think it helps me uh, in this situation uh, because it's clear. I'm not. I'm not feeling good. <laughs> um, the funny thing is that when I don't feel good, it doesn't look much different. I, whoa! The man flu. Whoa! Come on. Okay, let's <laughs> let's move on to a different topic. We'll revisit. We'll we'll revisit this uh, when you're not standard, as from standard your operating procedure when there's sickness in the household. Um, Melissa, the midterms are Tuesday. We're not going to do a full extended discussion, but um, I am not. I think I'm going to put sort of my, not official, but I want to spend a little more time thinking about it. I'll write up sort of my predictions, my thoughts. But Melissa, are you still feeling like Republicans are set to win the House and the Senate? Or yep. how are you? how are you feeling about this? Um, I feel like my prediction of what is it now, two and a half, three weeks ago still stands. I feel even more firmly that it's a 51, 49 going towards Republicans in the Senate. And I feel like Republicans are going to gain, like I said, around 20, maybe even up to 25. Uh, the term I used was bloodbath. So gain or that will, will be their majority? Because right now they're like, I think eight, they're eight That will be their majority. The so they'll have a majority. So they'll, they'll pick up like 30 uh -huh. to 35 yeah. seats. Okay. Yep, I still stand on it. All right. Well, we'll see, folks. Um, we want to hear from you. Uh, what are you looking for? Uh, what are your predictions? What congressional districts uh, do you live in? And tell us a little bit about how the races developed uh, where, where you live in your local area for Congress. Tell us if there are any interesting local races that we should have an eye on where you live. Um, and again, on Monday, I'll post a, I, what I think is going to be a pretty extensive uh, article about the midterms. And then Tuesday, join us at the Substack for uh, a pretty uh, uh, for, for a, a live thread as late as we need to go to figure out who's going to control Congress and and these uh, governor's mansions and all the way down the ballot. Uh, and we look forward to being in conversation with you throughout the week. Until then, thank you for listening. As always, we'll talk to you uh, next week. Uh, this has been Where We Are. Bye. <laughs> Sorry. Just, I'm Derelicted my duties. I'm supposed to be the space cadet. I had to poke her to get... <laughs> The bye uh, out of her. You just sounded like Ilaria. Yeah. It's the end of the weekend, but I still wanna turn up. Yeah, I still wanna turn up. All I want is to go again.